The reading this morning is three passages from Genesis. And we'll start with Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The second, two re- second and third readings are taken from chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, and verse, verses 14 to 19. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord, had, Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say that? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, that you must not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Good morning. My name is Rich, I'm the vicar. If you don't know who I am, I'm teaching us uh, at the moment. And we're going through this series called God's Unfolding Story, looking at the whole of Scripture as one drama, if you like, made up of six acts. Last week we looked at the first act, which was creation, and today we're looking at act two, what we call the fall. So keep your Bibles open. We're going to go back to those passages that Jilly read so well to us. Um, We've been suggesting that, um, as a working definition, uh, the Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine in origin, 
that together tell a unified story that lead us to Jesus Christ. That's our definition of the Bible. And we are looking, as I said, at this uh, idea that uh, you can break the whole of Scripture up into six chunks, six acts, the story of God. I know it's a bit small print for those of you at the back. We're going to get some postcards of these made towards the end of the series to help you remember it. But six acts, and we are in the second act. We're going to look at what happens in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Uh, We talked last week about this idea that the Bible provides, quoting Charles Gherkin, the Bible provides us with an overarching narrative in which all other narratives of the world can be nested. Every movie, every film, every song, every poem. The Bible is the story of God, he says. The story of the world is first and foremost the story of God's activity in creating, sustaining, and then redeeming the world to fulfill God's purposes for it. In other words, read this to make sense of what we experience as humans. That's the, that's the plan, that's the idea with this series. And if you were here last week, you'll hopefully remember uh, I suggested that uh, there are two things to hold on to, two key points from the first act. First, that we were created to live with God in a good creation. God created and it was good. Uh, And the second idea was that as his divine image bearers, our vocation, our calling as humans, is to rule over that good creation until the whole world is filled with it. So God created something that was good, and yet our experience, particularly we think about that today, don't we, on Remembrance Sunday, is that quite clearly things aren't good. Something's gone wrong somewhere. Something's happened. Creation is broken. There's still inherent original goodness in it. We see it, don't we? We see sparks of it. We see beauty and wonder. We see humans full of virtue do amazing things. But there are also these horrific reminders that clearly all is not well. Something has gone wrong I love this quote from Eugene Peterson who says, A catastrophe has occurred. We are no longer in continuity with our good beginning. We have been separated, he says, separated from it, he says, by a disaster. We are also, of course, separated from our good end. We are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. That's our experience. We have this tension because we know that it was made good, but we know that it's somehow not so good. And we try to reconcile that. That's the human experience. And I would put to you that Genesis chapter 3 explains brilliantly why the world is the way it is and why humans are the way they are. I'd actually suggest to you that it's probably the most profound, deep, intelligent story ever written on the problem of sin and evil and brokenness. Its level of insight is actually stunning. It answers the big questions of our heart. Why do we experience such excruciating pain? Why do people abuse other people? Why do we steal and lie? Why is it that we can find ourselves trapped in prisons of unforgiveness? Why is it that we can be so defended towards the other? Why is it that we withhold love and grace? Why? Genesis 3, I think, speaks to that. Why is it that 
bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Genesis 3, I think, speaks to that. I was reading the story recently to my children. I was struck just by how odd it actually is. Think about it for a moment. There's a talking snake. There's a magic tree. and Everyone's naked. It's like, what is going on? It's like the Beatles in their kind of LSD era, you know? It's like, what? How we read Genesis 3 is so important. Remember what Laura taught us about hermeneutics, how we approach the text? You have to approach Genesis 3 carefully. It is another example of what's called true myth. It's trying to tell a story. It's trying to use these ideas and narrative um, methods to communicate huge truth. Don't get hung up on all of the details and the language. The key is to remember that what it's trying to say is this is why the world is not as it is. This is what happens. This is the consequence. And this is therefore why we experience this tension. So there are two points I want to make this morning. First is that the sin of Adam and Eve has cosmic consequences. We'll come to that in a moment. The second is that God already had a plan for the redemption of his creation. We see that in Genesis 3. So you ready? Great. I'm going to keep going. Uh, So the first thing then, this idea that the sin of Adam and Eve has cosmic consequences. I suggested last week, and you may not agree with me, that Adam and Eve are not literal, real people. Adam is the Hebrew word for human Eve is the human, uh, is the Hebrew word for life, human life. In other words, they are narrative symbols for humanity in this creation story. Uh, and uh, we add in now a third character, a snake. So if you've got your Bibles open, verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent, or the snake, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So notice, the Lord God made the animal. He created the snake. Adam would have known it, because remember, Adam is tasked with naming them all, back in Genesis uh, uh, 1 and 2, we see that. So this is a known creature, and Christians have understandably been a bit confused by this. Why did God allow such a creature into the garden? Which, remember last week, I suggested to you, you need to see is the creation temple of God, it's the good bit. It's the bit that's been cultivated and made well and good. How could this evidently bad creature be in a good world? We know, remember Laura taught us about reading forwards through the scriptures, but also reading backwards. We know as we read backwards through the lens of Jesus Christ that the serpent, the snake, represents Satan. Have a look at Romans chapter 16, verse 20. But those writing Genesis, those hearing it spoken at the time, they wouldn't have had that framework. For them, the snake would have been viewed as a chaos creature that came from the watery, uncreated, or uncultivated bit of creation. The bit that represents disorder. Potential, sure, but chaotic and disordered. What we call toho vobohu. This created material that's yet to be cultivated. It's out of that that comes this snake. Whenever you see sea monsters and sea and, and the watery chaos woven through the scriptures, that is kind of a biblical language for the, uh, the unordered bit of God's creation. Which, by the way, is why Jesus makes a big deal of Peter trying to walk on water. Because he's subduing the disorder. That's a whole other sermon. 
You can have that for free this morning. For them, this creature comes to promote disorder and chaos. So clearly something's happened to the snake, who was created good originally, but is now not. Right? They would have known that the snake didn't originate in the garden, that something's happened earlier in the story to make this creature become evil. Determined, actually, to undermine the creative work of the creator through his creative creatures, you and I. So notice what the snake does, verses 1 to 5. He questions God. Did God really say? So we know from the first verse that this snake is crafty. The word actually is devious. He's devious. Notice verse 1. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This isn't actually what God said. Here's what God said. Uh, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Eve corrects him, verses 2 and 3. She's doing all right at this point. But then he comes back and has another crack at her. I think verses 4 to 5, essentially what he's doing is he's questioning God's love, God's motivation towards humans. He's causing her to doubt the goodness of God, his motivation. Do you remember last week we looked at how God made us because he loves us? And that was a unique idea at the time, that God created us because he wanted to. He's saying, if God really loved you, surely he'd let you eat it. He just sows some doubt into uh, Eve's mind. The lie that he's sowing is that God is somehow holding something back from her. That he's not really good. That actually you can't really trust him. Or put another way, God says, I'm good. The tree is dangerous. It will kill you. Trust me. The snake says, God is bad. The tree is good. You won't die. Trust me. What's the temptation here? The temptation is to gain moral autonomy. It's to think and believe and act that we know better than God. It's the temptation to to be able to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. In other words, to become like God. He plays to this pride in Adam and Eve. And what they forget is that they're already like God. We're made in his image. We're already as like him as we can possibly be as humans. And the tragic irony, and we see this as the story unfolds, and if you've been reading through uh, the Bible as part of our year of biblical literacy, I know we're in the really difficult bit now, Leviticus and all that stuff. It's like, what the heck? But if you remember the Genesis stuff... Uh, you see this story just unravels. And, and the tragedy is that we become less human. Uh, sorry, less like God and less human as a result of this action. Not more like God, they become less like him. They believed a lie. And here's the rub. That temptation that Eve and then Adam faced is exactly the same one that you and I face every day we get up. Every morning. Who am I going to trust? God? Who we now know, because Jesus reveals this to us, is the loving Father, who's for us, not against us. 
from whom every good and perfect gift comes. Or the snake. Are we going to trust God? Or are we going to trust in ourselves? Or put another way, are we going to choose faith? Or pride? How's it going? The human condition ultimately is explained in that one simple truth. Let's keep going. Keep with your Bibles. Verses 6 through to 13. This bit is known as the fall. It's from this story we get the idea of original sin. We talked last week about original goodness. Now here's original sin. That all humans born into a post-Genesis 3 world have some inherent original brokenness and sin in them because they're born broken into a broken world by broken people. Uh, now that's a whole theological conversation for another time, but that's the, that's the orthodox Christian view. And so it raises this question, what is sin? It's all very well saying, well, we're sinners without Jesus. But what is a sinner? What is sin? I want us to be really clear on this. Because I think it affects how we treat one another. And how we engage missionally with the world around us. I heard someone put it like this recently. Sin is what happens when we take God's good, beautiful, true world. And out of our own free will and volition, screw it up. We screw up our relationships And we do it actively. Sin is not trusting God and his vision of human flourishing. Actually, the best definition I've ever come up with, uh, come across is this one from Cornelius Plantinger. We talked about him last week. Great name. Amazing theologian. He says this. Sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. So shalom is what happens when you fill the world and create it and help God create this beautiful thing that's exactly as he intended, human flourishing, uh, beauty, justice, wonder, all of those things. Sin is when we culpably, i.e. We, 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 we're doing it and we have to take responsibility for it, disturb that by acting in a way that's counter to it. We uncreate. We decreate. And the effect of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge, and good and e- of, knowledge of good and evil is huge. It's this culpable disturbance. And, and it changes everything. The entire course of the story turns on that one act. Suddenly, God's not uh, outworking this particular intention. He's having to now bring back on track what he, what he started. He's got to work with a disturbance. He's got to work with a brokenness. He's got to work with shattered relationships. So, for example, we see in Genesis 2, verse 25, just go back a couple of verses, a, a, a chapter to those couple of verses. Adam and Eve, we're told, are naked and unashamed. But now in Genesis 3, they're naked and ashamed. And interestingly, uh, the word for uh, ashamed, uh, naked and unashamed in chapter 3 is different to the word that's used to describe their condition in chapter 2. It's very subtle in the Hebrew, but it's deliberate. The word used in chapter 2 speaks of an innocence, like a freedom. Just imagine if you've got children or grandchildren or, you know, children, who, when they're really little and it's the summer and it's hot, you know, I know it's every so often, um, that they just run around naked, blissfully unaware of their genitalia, their future sexuality. There's just this gorgeous innocence. That's the picture you're meant to have. In contrast to chapter 3, 
where the language is very specific and it means to come under God's judgment. Or put another way, they suddenly become aware of who they are and what they're not. They feel exposed. There's a guilt. There's a conscience. The only other time that word is used is in Deuteronomy 28, verse 48, if you're making notes. 28, 48, Deuteronomy 28, 48. This idea of coming under God's judgment is this sense in which, hang on a minute, somehow God now is looking at us and going, huh? It's the first time it happens in the story. In other words, they're aware that something's happened between them and God and it's changed the relationship and they now know that God is not as pleased with them as he once was. And that's actually what we experience, isn't it, when we sin. We feel a shame, we feel a guilt, we have a conscience and we feel a need to confess, hopefully. (laughs) And so they hide from God. They think he's angry and cross with them, so they hide. There's this great sort of bit in the story where it says, you know, God comes looking for them and he says, where are you? Now he knows exactly where they are. The point of the story is to say, do they know where they are? Do they know that they've now come under his judgment? Do they know that something's changed? And yes, they do. So notice what they do, if you've got the text in front of you, they lie and they blame shift. Adam goes, it was her fault. And then Eve goes, no, no, it was the snake's fault. Married friends here, sound familiar? Was it me? It's you. Sin affects everything. And there's a load we could say about this. We're going to keep going. Um, but there's some reading we've put up online for you if you want to um, unpack this a bit more. But that's what's happened. And there are consequences to sin. Verses 14 to 19. This is what uh, theologians call the curse uh, first, notice verse 14 to 15, the snake is cursed. And then the ground is cursed, verses 17 to 18. But contrary to popular opinion, notice this, please hear this. Adam and Eve themselves are not cursed. I think the danger for us as Christians is that we can too easily pick up our Bibles and think it starts at Genesis 3 and think it finishes in Revelation 19 and miss the four beautiful chapters that create the two bookends. And what we can do if we're not careful is we can come at other people and think that somehow they are cursed by God unless they're redeemed by God. Actually, that's not what the text says. They come under judgment. There is a consequence for them. But actually, God doesn't curse humanity. He doesn't curse that which he created in his image. Despite that, sin clearly has devastating and far-reaching consequences. As I said earlier, everything's ruptured. Everything's corrupted. In other words, sin is actually its own punishment. God doesn't need to make it any harder for us. And as we'll see in a moment, actually, God could, but he doesn't. Why? Because we're still very good. So for Eve, verse 16, it's her relationship to marriage and family that becomes cursed. Childbearing is now painful. What was once pure joy is now a mixed bag. Hey, mums. For the man, verse 17, it's his relationship to the ground and to work that is damaged. Work, which was a a good thing, in Genesis 1 and 2, is now a a, a painful thing, a toil, a hardship, which is why our culture still lives for Friday. When we get to rest from work, 
which is the wrong way round, because in the creation narrative we work from rest. Again, an entire other sort for another time. In other words, guys, no matter how much you love your job and it's a good fit for you, it won't satisfy you. Girls, no matter how relational you are, no matter how many friends you have, no matter what your family situation is, if it's even everything you'd wanted, it will not satisfy you. Because the only thing that satisfies us ultimately is true right relationship with God. And until Jesus comes into the story, ultimately we're not guaranteed that. In other words, the, as the New Testament would put it, the, the, the wages of sin ultimately is death. But it's a slow death. It's not just literal physical death, but it's the death of intimacy, of joy, of peace, of all the things that actually make us human. Now, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien um, created a, a character to capture this idea of the effect of sin on humanity. Sin dehumanizes us. It decreates us. And uh, I'm going to put this picture up, but I, it's a health warning. This is Gollum. He, what he was trying to do is say, this is what it looks like to be dehumanized. The ring represents moral autonomy, power, knowledge of good and evil. My precious. And the very thing that he's so determined to hang on to dehumanizes him. So if you know the story, and particularly if you've seen the movies, he becomes less and less human over the course of the story. So It's so ugly. But that's what we're like on the inside, unchecked. Sin dehumanizes us. The tragedy is, in seeking something that we thought would give us more, we become less The other big tragedy is that sin affects other people. We live in a culture that says, well, as long as what I do doesn't hurt you, it's okay. No, it's not okay, actually. Because what you do do, or what you don't do, that you should do, has an effect on everybody else. Because we're interwoven with the created order. What I do or don't do, that I should or shouldn't do, affects you and it affects my family, it affects the world around me. There's a, 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 a sense in which we have to grasp again that sin is not just personal, but it's also corporate. It's cosmic. Everything is broken. And I cannot act in isolation from the world around me. You know, we've got an evening gathering full of young adults who are the victim of their parents' sin and brokenness. You too may be someone who's living under the consequences or living in the consequences of someone else's sin. We all are. The consequence for Adam and Eve, ultimately, because of all of this, as you know if you've read the story, is that they have to leave the garden. And again, I think popular opinion is that God's just really angry with them. So he's like, get out of my sight. Out you go. I'm really hacked off. I'll put a couple of angels with some flaming swords to stop you getting back in. Get out of my sight. That's not what happens here. God does this because he has no choice, but it's actually that it's like a holding pattern so that he can begin to do some redemptive work. He maintains relationship with Adam and Eve. It's just that they can't live in the garden. So why? This is crucial to understand. Remember that there were two trees in the garden. Take a look at verse 22, chapter 3. Here it is. 
the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Humans, as God intended, were never meant to die. Death is the consequence of sin. Sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. We were created to live forever in right relationship with God. That's what the tree of life represents. It's what theologians call conditional immortality. In other words, our immortality was conditional, is conditional, on being in right relationship with God. If you're in right relationship with God, you have free access to the tree of life, you will live forever. Now you need to hang on to that idea, because we're going to come back to that in Act chapter 4, uh, Act 4, the fourth act, two weeks' time. Adam and Eve have to leave the garden to prevent them from accessing the tree of life because they'd rejected relationship with God and crucially now had knowledge of good and evil as well. So if they are allowed to stay in the garden, they can function as autonomous moral beings. In effect, they can operate as gods. Hence, oh no, they become like one of us. So what does God do? He prevents them accessing the tree of life. He has no choice because to do so... That is the safest, least damaging option for his created world. It buys him some time. And so we believe that we're born into this world. We're born into a world where humans exist on the wrong side of the garden fence, so to speak. And we see it everywhere, don't we? This brokenness, this sin. Some people give in to it, and eventually we see them on the news. Others fight with everything they've got in all of their lives to strive and to seek to become that which God intended. They tap into their original goodness. We call that virtue. And there's a place for that. But actually, we have to understand that it's more fundamental than just making a choice to go one way or not. There's a human condition that ultimately only God can fix. So if you know the story real quick, Genesis 4, things deteriorate. Cain kills Abel. It's the first after-effect of sin. This violence erupts within humanity. That's a theme woven woven through the rest of Genesis, right? Genesis 5, it says the sons of God, and we're not sure what that means. Wicked, evil men, maybe. Demonic beings, maybe. We're not sure. doesn't matter. The point of the story is that they all go corrupt. Things go crazy. Humanity is uh, caught up in a never-ending cascade, getting worse scenario of sin. And we get to the point in Genesis 6 that God ends up saying, verse 7, have a look at this, just turn to Genesis chapter 6, whether you've ever noticed this before. Verse 7, he says, I am grieved that I made them. Chapter 6 of the first book in the Bible already, it's so bad that the God who created us and says we were very good now says, I wish I hadn't. Your sin, my sin, it grieves God. It robs him of glory, but it denies us of our humanity, and that breaks his heart. Which is why it matters that you deal with your crap. That's a Hebrew word, which is why I can say it. (laughs) It matters that you deal with your baggage. It matters that you become undefended and face up to what you're not. 
Because not only does it affect everyone else, but crucially it denies you something of what God has for you. And if there's anything I'll contend for in this church, it's that we trust God so much that we'll just deal with our stuff in community. I feel better now. And so God floods the earth. He wipes the slate clean to start over. Genesis 9, then, is in a sense, if you fast forward just quickly to that, this recreation account. Noah emerges from the ark, as a whole other story, and he finds himself in some sort of pristine virgin land. And what does God say to him? Verse 1 of chapter 9. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Hello? He's starting again. He's not giving up on the people made in his image. So Noah plants a vineyard. Yes, the cultural mandate. And then we find ourselves in Genesis 11, the well-known story of the Tower of Babel. Technology, bricks, yep, again, cultural mandate, right? Except that no, because what do they do? They build a tower. First, they stop spreading and filling the earth. They settle. Then they build a tower. Why? So they can become autonomous from God. It's like the story repeats itself. It's like, oh, hello. And so what does God do? He scatters them. He breaks up their language. Uh, That's the clue there to what's happening in Pentecost, by the way. Come back to that in a couple of weeks' time. I'm just putting all these teasers out. Make sure you come back next week. The point of all of these stories is to show that things deteriorate, that sin escalates, that cosmic sin escalates, that things unravel, creation decreates. God, as you'll see next week, tries over and over and over and over and over and over again to put things right through his people and eventually has to do it himself in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Next week is key to make sense of Jesus. So if you're not here next week, do listen in online. Now finally, much quicker, God already had a plan for the redemption of creation. That's the second point this morning. It's pretty depressing, isn't it, at this point, let's be honest. A bit of doom and gloom. Really? It's like, oh God. Two things to notice as we finish. First, there is a beautiful promise tucked back in Genesis 3 that we need to see. So if you've got your Bibles open, back to verse 15 of Genesis 3. You may have noticed it when it was read. It says, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now we know now, although they didn't at the time, that he, a descendant of Eve, a human, will come uh, to eradicate evil by crushing the snake but he will be struck by the snake in the process. We know that that's Jesus. They just know there's a promise. They don't really understand it. We look back and go, oh, that's what Jesus did. God doesn't just curse the snake in the ground. He promises Jesus. It's what theologians call the proto-gospel moment. Before they leave the garden, notice this, before they leave the garden, God promises one who will come who will crush the serpent, but only after the serpent has first struck the heel. There's this beautiful picture 
uh, here, which captures, I think, this so amazingly, and we'll put this online for you. Um, I'll come over here. I haven't got like a pointer, but uh, this is uh, this is um, Mary on the right-hand side, pregnant with Jesus. Can you see the the belly? Uh, Eve's hand is on Jesus' belly. She's holding an apple. Wrapped round her is the snake. It's this promise that there's going to come a day when Jesus steps in and he deals with the problem of human sin. And we believe he's done it. Hello? He came. He lived. He died. He was raised to new life. He's done it. And we now step into that in faith. We'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time. So we'll put that online because I think that just sums up everything we've said so far. The second thing to notice, real quick, is that before they leave the garden, God does something for Adam and Eve. Have a look, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The creator God gets creating again. He begins to work out a redemption plan for his creation before they leave the garden. This is really deep. This is huge, okay? In the ancient Near East, if you were to sin against the master of the house, you were disinherited and you had all your clothing removed and you were sent out naked into the street under judgment. If you're given clothing, it's a way of saying you're still part of the family. If you join the family as a slave, you're given clothes. It says you're part of us. This is what's going on in Luke chapter 15. Do you get it? What does the father do to the returning son? He clothes him. He puts back on the robe that says you're part of the family. It's a promise of this in Isaiah 61 verse 10. Make a note. Have a look later. He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Ephesians 4.22 You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which has been corrupted by deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Notice this. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And finally, Revelation 19 verse 8 Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. What you see, right at the end of this awful story, is grace starts to weave its way into the story of God. Throughout the scriptures, it weaves its way through this idea of being clothed, covered. Why? Because you're still very good. And so our story is one of grace. Grace.